that song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. TGIF at OMG. Third Fridays of every month at 7.30. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank God it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG. Check us out. Free shows. Great drink specials. Hilarious comics. Every Friday. San Francisco gouging ya. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG. 6th Street. Come on out with your friends. Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at O-M-G. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? One of the most important weapons, instruments in any cause, in any movement, in any strike, is the picket sign. We wrote a song about this. It's in Spanish. We call it El Picket Sign. Desde Texas a California, campesinos están luchando. Desde Texas a California, campesinos están luchando. Los rancheros a llori llore. De huelga ya están bien pandos el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Lo llevo por todo el día, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Conmigo toda la vida, ya tenemos más del año peleando con esta huelga. Ya tenemos más del año peleando con esta huelga. Un ranchero ya murió. Y el otro y así su abuela, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Lo llevo por todo el día, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Conmigo toda la vida. Un primo que tengo yo, andaba regando diches. Un primo que tengo yo, andaba regando diches. Un día con pagarulo. Y otro con sanaba biches, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Lo llevo por todo el día, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Conmigo toda la vida. Me dicen que soy muy necio, gritón y alborota pueblos. Me dicen que soy muy necio, gritón y alborota pueblos. Pero Juárez fue mi tío. Y Zapata fue mi suegro, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Lo llevo por todo el día, el piquet sign, el piquet sign. Conmigo toda la vida. Y ahora ando organizando la raza en todos los files. Y ahora ando organizando 
la raza en todos los files y muchos siguen comiendo tortillas con puros chiles el piguet sign el piguet sign lo llevo por todo el día el piguet sign el piguet sign conmigo toda la vida hay muchos que no comprenden aunque uno les da consejos hay muchos que no comprenden aunque uno les da consejos la huelga es un bien para todos pero unos se hacen pendejos el piguet sign el piguet sign lo llevo por todo el día el piguet sign el piguet sign conmigo toda la vida el piguet sign el piguet sign lo llevo por todo el día el piguet sign el piguet sign conmigo toda la vida Edwards lived in the little town of West Seattle on the other side of Puget Sound. Little tiny house, little bitty kitchen. He was a Norwegian immigrant, gave all of his life to the logging and, and to the union. He carried his bed card in the union every working day of his life. We sat in that little kitchen and he told me the story of the Spokane free speech fight, 1910. I, I would not attempt to duplicate that rumbling baritone voice or that Norwegian accent, but is the story the way he told it. He said, oh, they boomed into Spokane and towns all over the West, looking for work in the, in the silver mines up in the Coeur d'Alene's or, or in the logging camps or in the wheat harvest, the 110 cats, the great wheat lands that flow away south of Spokane called the Palouse. Well, you jungle up in the flops, uh, wait for the weather to break, and, uh, and then you go down on the street, on Trent Avenue, and there were these rows of little shops called labor sharks. Well, labor sharks hold jobs. You give a labor shark $4, and it entitles you to a job, uh, say, putting down a new mine shaft up in the Coeur d'Alene. Well, you'd boom up there to that job, burning up your road stake as you went. You get up there, work a month, get paid, and then fired. Why? because the, the foreman on the job was splitting the labor fees with the shark in town. So crooked as hell, they called it perpetual motion, where you had one job, one worker going to the job, one worker on the job, one worker coming back that might buy another damn job. Well, he said that the, the union, the Wobblies, IWW, they came into most towns all over the West, in Spokane, 
and uh, to build union hiring halls to control the conditions of their labor. Well, the one in Missoula, Montana was burned down. The one in Spokane was torn down by the law. So the Wobblies went down on the street and they put up soap boxes and they get up on the soap box and start windmilling, street speaking, exhorting. And they'd always set up right across the street from the Starvation Army. Be over there Bible banging and Jesus preached and telling these working folks that to give what they had to, uh, to Jesus to get pie in the sky by and by. My, my, that's a lie. Well, they were good at it. People flocked across the street to join a fighting union, which offers a more immediate form of salvation than the standard garden variety. Scared the tar out of the city and out of the bosses, so they passed an ordinance against free speech, against speaking openly on the street. Applied to everybody except the Salvation Army. Now, that's intolerable. We all know that the state can't give you free speech, and the state can't take it away. You're born with it, like your eyes, like your ears. Huh? We all understand that. Like old Campbell said, freedom is something you assume. Then you wait for somebody to try to take it away from you. The degree to which you resist is the degree to which you are free. So they said, okay, we're going to resist. They sent out a call to anybody cut loose from a job in the whole territory. They flooded into town on the freight trains, filled it up, put that soapbox up on Trent Avenue in defiance of the law built a line four blocks down and four blocks up, and every one of those booming workers took their turn up on that soapbox. Had time Come enough on, to you. say, fellow workers, they got arrested. Well, that was the idea, of course, to fill the jails. The Finnish workers, they were the tough ones. The fin Finnish immigrants were socialists when they got here. The Finnish worker had learned enough English to be able to say, fellow workers, and if the cop wasn't right there, he'd say, where's that damn cop? Well, they filled the city jail, filled the county jail, filled the, the sports arena, all the high school gyms, grade schools. Every square inch of public space was full of busted boomers. But then the city had to feed them. The tax burden was enormous. And the taxpayers balked and said, we're not going to spend our hard-earned hard loot to feed that bunch of grimy grifters down in the slammer. So they had to change the ordinance. And they won and it didn't take any ballot boxes, and it didn't take any political parties. It's called direct action and comes to us highly recommended. Labor and love, having a little technical difficulty. Get it, I am.
Come all you poor workers, good news to you. I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win. Because we've got the gun thugs looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say they have to guard us to educate their child. Their children live in luxury, our children almost wild. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Gentlemen, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a gun thug or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner. He's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you, fellow workers, till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Now, all of you know which side you're on, and they'll never keep us down. Well, I wanted to play some Union songs to start out, and I did, but the uh, website is not cooperating. Okay, so we had El Picket Sign with, uh, with uh, Luis Valdez. Founder of Teatro Campesino. Again, as a support group for United Farm Workers as a campaign both educate and entertain. And we had direct action by uh, Annie DeFranco and redoubtable U Utah Phillips story about the free speech fight and how they filled the jails and Ocan, Washington filled the jails and won right to free speech, although Utah insists that free speech is something that you have, you're given when you're born. You can't give it to you. And then last, of course, Everybody. And yes, this is the B and um, 
we're with you this morning. The 29th, two days away from May Day. We're going to have a special feast. May Day, the history of the holiday. How May Day began. How it evolved into holiday working people all over the world except in the United States, even though the inspiration for May Day came from events that happened in the United States in and around Chicago May Day is not celebrated officially here all over the world. So what do we got for you today? We've got um, deplorable working conditions in India, tea plantation. University of Michigan docks pay, calls cops on striking grad students. Tyson, poultry processing companies closes as the workers strike over their treatment. Ugly secret. Big capitalist. Butchers. Places that process cattle and chickens. How the workers are. Calling it BS. Philadelphia and across the country, the movement Organized cultural workers just keep going. And uh, look at DeSantis' battle against Disney, although it looks like there's not really a, a good guy. Labor History in Two, Radio Labor, said the May Day history. Situation room. And we've got 12, 12 May Day songs, if I'm not wrong. We've got Florence Reese's song. The next one would have been uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford. and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio every Saturday morning 10 to 12 Labor News History Commentary over on overall view of what's going on get the dollars they didn't work for someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, guess what? You're on the menu. Other people are sitting down and deciding about your time here on earth. While we can't really be sure what goes on after we die, we know that while we're here, 
fight for every moment. Fight for quality of life. They'll they'll use you up and gone. Another cycle. Um Okay. Enough said. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Okay, let's listen to Solidarity News from Radio Labor and get a grip on what's happening around the world with working people. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 28, 2023. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, the International Trade Union Confederation appoints an acting general secretary. Labor Start holds a global conference in Tbilisi, Georgia. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. This is Radio Labor. The International Trade Union Confederation has appointed Luke Triangle as its acting general secretary. The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States at the world level. Mr. Triangle is a trade unionist from Belgium and has been serving as the Secretary General of the Industrial European Trade Union. The union represents 7 million union members in 200 countries. Mr. Triangle has been a longtime advocate of collective bargaining rights for workers. Here he is speaking at a conference of the Industrial European Trade Union. Strengthening collective bargaining is a key part of our struggle for higher pay and better working conditions. Over the past decades, collective bargaining has been eroded. During the recent crisis, collective bargaining was, was consciously attacked, both by national governments as by European institutions. We all know to what this has led. It has led to an increase in individual contracts which leave workers unable to stand up for their rights. It also caused a rise in precarious work and in-work poverty, and it fueled the rise in equality as workers no longer have the collective force to ensure a fair share of wealth. Too often, debates in society about living standards overlook collective bargaining as a solution to increase wages and living standards. We want to demonstrate the positive impact of collective bargaining underpinned by strong trade unions in delivering a better life for workers. Mr. Triang will serve as the ITUC's acting general secretary until the Confederation holds an extraordinary conference to elect a general secretary at the end of September 2023. 
The need for a new election for general secretary was made necessary when Luca Vicentini, who had been elected general secretary in Melbourne in November 2022, was charged with inappropriate behavior. He was accused of accepting 50,000 euros from an NGO during his election campaign. He was removed from office by the ITUC Governing Council in March 2023. Mr. Triang will take up his new position as the acting general secretary of the ITUC on May 1st. Labor Start, the international labor movement's news and campaigning service, is holding a global conference in Tbilisi, Georgia, starting April 28, 2023. Unionists, mainly rank-and-file unionists and union journalists, are attending the conference. I talked to Eric Lee about the conference. Eric is Labor Start's founding editor. I asked him who could attend the Labor Start conference. Who could attend is basically every trade unionist in the world is invited. And we've invited tens of thousands who run Labor Start's mailing lists in many languages. Who is coming is we had about 400 people registered from 78 countries. Um many of whom will be unable to attend because they were not given visas to attend uh, the conference in Georgia. Many of them are from Africa and South Asia. I should add, this has happened to us in previous conferences, including our last one in Toronto, where we really struggled to get people from those parts of the world uh, to come because of the visa situation. We are expecting between 150 and 200, but you never know. It could be more. What workshops are being organized at the conference? Right now, we're, we're finalizing the, the program. It's all very last minute, but we have about 20 workshops, and they cover a broad range of subjects, including uh, the struggle for trade union rights in Belarus with a delegation from Belarus, uh, labor solidarity with Ukraine. We have Ukrainian trade union leaders coming. Uh, Central Asia, 12 years after the, the uh, Zanozin massacre, we have uh, organizing for gender equality. We have the struggle for democracy in, in Turkey, Georgia, and Israel. We have online campaigning and digital mobilization, and many, many more. Can you tell me about what some of the topics that these people will be addressing? They'll be talking about trade union internationalism and how we build global solidarity in support of, for example, trade unions in Ukraine or trade unions in Belarus or Iran or places where workers' rights are being violated. What organizations are helping to organize the conference? Conference is organized by Labor Start itself, but we're being hosted by and we're in partnership with the Georgian Trade Union Confederation, the GTUC, which is the National Trade Union Center here in Georgia. We're receiving support, financial support, from the Friedrich Eber Foundation, which is the arm and arm of the German Social Democratic Party, and also from the Solidarity Center, which is run by the AFL-CIO in the United States. What is the difference between the kind of conference that you're organizing at a conference held by a global union or the ITUC? Well, I mean, the first difference is those are official decision-making conferences they're obligated to hold with elected representatives as delegates. This conference is not a decision-making body. Anyone can attend. There are no votes taken on anything. We're not obligated to hold it. You know, if you go to a global union conference of teachers— the only people you meet are teachers. If you go to a global union conference of transport workers, it's only transport workers. This conference will have everyone, every worker represented, every sector of the economy represented. So it's quite different from those events. But the ITUC has workers from all across the world in all sectors. 
That's right. But the ITC is not a a traditional trade union conference in that ordinary unions don't send delegates. Delegates are sent by national trade union centers, which are unions of unions. Delegates who go usually are quite several levels removed from the actual workers on the shop floor in offices. They're usually from national centers, which are quite different from actual unions. So they're, um, yes, they represent all sectors of the economy, but they often, ordinary workers won't be there. Rank and file people, shop stewards, local branch officers will never see an ITC convention in their lives. So those are the kind of people that are going to be attending uh, the Labor Start Conference. The whole range. We, we have always from ordinary rank and file workers, including, by the way, pensioners who show up and participate, up, up to general secretaries and presidents of national and global unions. We get the whole, run the whole gamut. When was the last conference? The last conference was held in Toronto in 2016, seven years ago. Which is, which is a long time ago. It's terrible we haven't had one since. Why haven't you had one since? I could say COVID, but COVID only hit us in 2020. We, we thought and attempted to have conferences before that. In fact, the conference we would have held after Toronto was going to be in Hong Kong. We were invited by the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions to have a conference there. They no longer exist. They have been dissolved by the Chinese state. So we, we missed an opportunity while there were still free trade unions in Hong Kong to have a conference there. Do you have any idea where the next conference might be held? I don't know where we'll have the next conference. I have um, I have dreams. I dream that we will one day hold a conference in Kiev, in, in, in Ukraine that's liberated from Russian aggression, or a conference, for example, in Israel and Palestine, co-hosted by the two union federations. Those would be nice. Tell me about Labor Start. What does it do? When did it start? Start is the news and campaigning platform of the international trade union movement. It's been around for 25 years. We're celebrating our birthday today. Mark, you were there at the very beginning with all of us when it all kicked off, and you and I were very young men at the time. Uh, we run news stories, hundreds of them, every, every week about the labor movement, and we run campaigns for trade unions. Tell us about the campaigns. How does that work? The campaigns, we're a little different from other campaigning organizations. We're part of the labor movement. Unions come to us when they have a problem, and we help. Our latest campaign is in support of workers here in Georgia who are couriers. They've been on strike for three months. We're giving them support by mobilizing people, raising awareness of what they do, and, and getting thousands of messages sent to the employer. So the campaign consists of getting people to send messages to the employer do you have any examples of how effective that has been? We have many examples. In fact, a few years ago, we did a book of, on our campaign victories. It was a slim book, but it was a book. And so there were, there were dozens, dozens of victories and many, many more not victories. We don't, we don't always win, but sometimes we win. And here, appropriately enough, is a report about union events by Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to coverage of Labor Start itself as we posted items in several languages about the opening of our first global solidarity conference since before the start of the pandemic, including, of course, the radio labor interview with Eric Lee, our founding editor, that you heard earlier in this podcast. Other top stories on our site today include the global labor movement's reaction to the conflict in Sudan, renewed protests by oil workers in Kazakhstan, progress and the lack thereof in improving workplace safety for garment workers in Bangladesh, 
on the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster, and, of course, statements from unions around the world in the run-up to today, International Workers Memorial Day. We also covered labor stories from India, where platform workers might soon see legislated improvements to their working conditions, and from the United Kingdom, where a court case is moving forward that may see Kenyan tea plantation workers compensated for workplace injuries by the Scottish company that owns many of the farms on which they work. This week, our Working Women news page carried news of how the UK's Tory government is planning to eliminate hundreds of residual European Union legislation, including many laws and regulations that provide for workplace gender equality. We also covered the progress being made on pay equity in New Zealand and some bizarrely cheering news from Syria, where despite the civil war and the broader political situation, women workers are making gains. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included similar struggles against hazardous workplace substances as unions in Australia push for a ban on silica and European labor pushes for the total elimination of asbestos as it remains the leading cause of occupational disease there with 90,000 workers dying from exposure to it each year. Our current photo of the week is a shot of BHM members on the march through Reykjavik earlier this month as wage strikes continue around the world. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the globe. This week, we'd like to highlight two new urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Belarus and in Georgia. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now, given that we are headed into a global campaign for a new ITUC General Secretary, we should remember our commitment to solidarity. Here is the American folk singer Joe Glazer. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Now they have taken untold millions they never toil to earn but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel could turn we can break their haughty power gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever
It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife. But I've been working, man, dang near all my life, and I'll keep on working. Long as my two hands are fit to use. I'll drink my beer in a tavern, sing a little bit of these working man blues. Keep my nose on the grindstone, work hard every day. I might get a little tired on the weekend. After I draw my pay, I'll go back working. Come Monday morning, I'm right back with the crew. I drank a little beer that evening, sang a little bit of these working man blues. Sometimes I think about leaving. I want to throw my bills out the window, catch a train to another town, I'll go back working. Gotta buy my kids a brand new pair of shoes. I drank a little beer in a tavern, cry a little bit of these working man blues. Here comes that working man.
Okay, of course, there, Dolly Parton, with uh, one of the best, one of the best hits, labor hits, labor songs, nine to five. Union organizers could talk themselves blue in the face, talk about Marx and his theories of surplus value, and Dolly puts it all together. No matter what they call it, you spend your life putting money in his wallet. Beautiful. Or that Merle Haggard. Merle Haggard with the working man's blues. And that's what we're about today. May Day's coming up. International Workers' Day. And uh, Joe Glazer, the union makes us strong. Well, a happy May Day to you, a premature celebration. <coughs> In a little bit, we'll play that May Day documentary, the evolution of the May Day holiday. But let's take a look here at some labor stories from things that are going on. This is the Real News Network article, The Deplorable Work Conditions Behind Harrods 7,000 Ambutia Snow Mist, Darjeeling Tea. Ambutia Snow Mist is a type of tea. Workers at Darjeeling area tea estates like Happy Valley in West Bengal, India, make under $3 a day. Couldn't be very happy for 3 bucks a day. And here's how it goes. We'll read some of it. I invite you to look it up on the Real News Network. In 2015, after you were done gawking at the statue of Princess Di in the world's largest department store, Harrods in London, you could head over to the world-famous food halls where you could buy, among other high-priced indulgences, a brand of tea-banded Ambudia Snow Mist. It's $7,860 per kilogram. It's about enough to make 300 cups. Snow Mist regularly made appearance on lists, listicles, sporting headlines like 21 gifts that prove Harris has finally lost its effing mind. Okay. Sold exclusively by London's high-end department store for about a decade, starting in the late 2000s, the tea was grown on the Happy Valley Tea Estate, a 400-plus acre plantation nestled in the Himalayan hills near the third tallest mountain in the world and the large town of Darjeeling. Darjeeling itself is a type of, a recognizable type of tea. Happy Valley is located in northern West Bengal, the same state as Bangla-speaking Kolkata. But the language of the area is Nepali. Locals known as Indian Gorkhas, to distinguish them from Nepali Gorkhas, 
have been agitating to get their own state. For four decades, they've been called Gokarla. Second oldest of Darjeeling's 87 tea plantations, Happy Valley is established, was established by a British man in 1854, just five years after Herod's itself. Happy Valley passed into the hands of an elite Bengali in the early 1900s. From there, it changed hands several times until it was abandoned, lying dormant up until the early 2000s. It is not uncommon for tea gardens to be semi-frequently abandoned by their owners, leaving workers, staff, and even managers in the lurch. Many tea plantations have been taken over by investors looking for short-term profits but who lack a long-term vision for the tea industry. The standard playbook for this promoter class of new owners goes something like this. Take out a huge loan using the land as collateral, siphon the capital to other businesses and drive workers to further pauperization. It is well known in and out the industry that these owners routinely fail to pay legally required pension contributions and evade land taxes. Land itself is owned by the state of West Bengal, not by the owners of the plantations who merely lease it. Okay, so have a check. And of course, the workers are paid $3 an hour, under $3 an hour. Um, this person, this writer, visited Happy Valley in October of last year. Rain was pouring down from the sky. Nevertheless, dealers clad in galoshes and holding umbrellas are still expected to pluck two leaves and a bud from the bushes in such conditions. Several dozen of the workers, mostly most of them women, were huddled along the inside walls of a structure that, judging by the sign alone, was meant to be a fair price shop for tourists and visitors to purchase tea from the plantation. Few men in the field Staff, as well as the women, were being denied their wages. Read it. Read the full article. Darjeeling. University of Michigan docks pay, calls cops on striking grad students. Graduate student workers at the University of Michigan are still on strike after hitting the picket line for the second time in three years at the end of March. In the time between the fall 2020 and winter 2023 strikes, according to the union, the gap between graduate workers' average pay and the cost of living in Ann Arbor has tripled. Facing a cost of living crisis and a fighting 
fighting for a slate of core demands from a living wage and affordable health care, child care to better protections for international students, graduate workers are not backing down. University of Michigan has tried every way they know to break the strike, um, including bringing suit against the striking grad students, a case that was thrown out of court by the judge. Okay, check that one out. Again, Real News Network. Here's one from Tyson. You probably know Tyson if you eat chicken. They provide a lot of the poultry that comes into uh, their supermarkets. Striking workers gathered in front of a Tyson Foods poultry processing plant in Van Buren, Arkansas, early this month, holding protest signs reading Justice for workers and chanting in Spanish, Si se puede, yes we can. Juntos venceremos, together we will win. They received notice from Tyson, a multinational poultry and meat processing giant headquartered about an hour away in Springdale, Arkansas, that the plant would be shuttered on May 12th. Van Buren plant employs almost 1,000 workers, many of them immigrants from El Salvador, Mexico, and Laos, some of whom have worked there for decades. Strike began on April 10th. The next day, a workers' delegation delivered a petition to plant management that was signed by more of 300 of the plant's employees asking for equal treatment compared to supervisors and corporate employees. With full severance payouts based on years of service, payouts for unused vacation time, better handling of workers' compensation and injury, injury claims, and fairer working conditions. Three days later, workers caravan by car to the company's Springdale offices and delivered a letter detailing their grievances to Tyson's CEO, Donnie King. I figured they were going to give us points that they would fire us, or they would fire us to retaliate, said one worker. But at the same time, we knew this is a right we have, and we can go on strike. According to several workers facing South interviewed, Tyson did not give employees any points for their absence, but it would not allow them to use vacation time to cover the missed days. The company said the closure of the Van Buren plant, which opened in 1975, was for efficiency. Tyson says the workers affected by the closure can relocate plants in northwest Arkansas or Texas. Those places are driving now or Van Buren. Sure, yeah, you can get a job at one of our other places. You just have to move your family or 
you have to drive an hour every day. All the striking workers from facing south interviewed citing concerns about working on a floor that is constantly slippery, flooded with chicken grease, oil, and water. Three employees also concerned were concerned about trench foot, a debilitating condition caused by a prolonged exposure to wet conditions. Others complained about constant pains from repeated actions on the processing line. Ladez Liliana Lezesu was told to keep working through the pain, which has impaired her life significantly. can't even comb my own hair, she said. I can't lift my arm because of the pain. After months of repeated visits to Tyson's infirmary, where she says she was treated with cream and Tylenol, curing pain in her left forearm, Delgado went to a doctor outside the Tyson Insurance Network. That doctor represented surgery. This is a worker who's worked at the place for 24 years. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow workers, take heed. Let's check that one out. That's on popularresistance.org. And one more, we're calling BS, Why Museum Workers Keep Unionizing at the In These Times website. In Philadelphia and across the country, the movement to organize cultural workers just keeps growing. Late March workers at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum, one of the top 10 ranked children museum in the museums in the country, voted to join the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, District Council 47. Landslide win, 85% of voters voted to unionize, follows other recent union victories in Philadelphia. White-collar cultural workers have been organizing in droves over the last few years, mirroring the country's growing support of unions, which currently sits at 68%. That's more than two out of every three people in this country. Support the right to form a union. While white-collar workers may not traditionally be seen as the face of unions, Sean Richmond, an author, academic, and former unionizer, tells in these times that these workers feel like they were sold a bill of goods by going to college, racking up debt, and then not getting rewarded with a decent six-figure job with decent benefits, basic Okay, that's our uh, union beat, our labor beat. We've got a story here about DeSantis. And while I don't want to waste any of my valuable time here talking about Ron DeSantis, 
is going to battle with Disney, which is not only stupid, I mean, it's like going up against Mickey Mouse. You're not going to win, okay? On Wednesday, Disney escalated its battle with Ron DeSantis by filing a lawsuit to attempt to stop the Florida's governor's efforts to revoke the company's control over the district itself governs. Okay, and remember, the, the reason this all happened was DeSantis and his extreme don't-say-gay law Disney came out, the Disney Corporation came out against it. Disney saying is this is a fight for freedom of speech against DeSantis anti-LGBTQ censorship. The complaint leans heavily on First Department Amendment rhetoric, but free expression is not its lead theory. Rather, Disney centers a claim that Florida violated its rights under its Constitution's contracts clause by voiding agreements that would have preserved its right to self-governance. Is its main argument to retain the right to its land and property. So basically, Disney wants to rule the rule this area, and DeSantis is going to battle them about it. Not a smart thing to do. All right. Let's see here. Recent history has May Day. Okay, where did May Day come from? How did it get to be where it is? Why does everyone else in the world celebrate it on May 1st? In the U.S., it's been consigned to Labor Day. Which rules brought the economy to a standstill, with more people thrown out of work than since the Great Depression. The videotaped murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer set off nationwide protests against systemic racism unprecedented in their scale. By that summer, as the pandemic and protests continued, climate change pushed its way back into the public eye in the form of huge hurricanes in the east and enormous wildfires in the west. All of this occurred by 2020. And that was before the election to decide whether Trump would be allowed to continue to erode American democracy and push the country toward authoritarian rule. The crises haven't stopped coming. It seems we're now living through a period resembling biblical end times prophecies. But the roots of our problems aren't new. Decisions made over the past 40 years by governments, liberal and conservative alike, here in the United States and across the world, on behalf of a philosophy known as neoliberalism, brought us here. According to these ideas, the world works best when workers have no collective power, either through political parties or trade unions. When capitalists are given gigantic tax cuts and the ability to spend as much as they want politically, 
and government regulations providing oversight of workplaces and the environment are torn up, enabling profit-making by a tiny, wealthy elite to override community needs and safety. Although neoliberalism became fashionable 40 years ago and has been doing its work ever since, it was really just old wine in a new bottle. In a word, what caused the dire events we're living through was capitalism. This film is about the opposite of capitalism. It's about democratic socialism, or more precisely, how the dream of a better world for the vast majority of people who live in it came to be symbolized by a holiday. Mayday. There are two origins for the holiday of May Day. One is the ancient celebration of spring, the promise of rebirth in the seasons and the renewal of the earth. The other is the assertion of workers' rights, also promising a rebirth of sorts, of our society, on the basis of solidarity and social justice. The old May Day, still celebrated in many places, originated with a Roman pagan festival, the Floralia, celebrating Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers. It featured dancing, bacchanalia, and other sensual pleasures appropriate for a holiday about fertility and procreation. Versions of this early May Day associated with either spring or summer appeared in different cultures all over the world. As with many pagan holidays, when Europe was becoming Christianized, May Day became contested terrain. In some places during the Middle Ages, it was incorporated into Catholic saints' days, by the 18th century, it became a feast day of St. Joseph the Worker, a carpenter, surrogate father to Jesus, and the husband of Mary. In the 19th century, May Day morphed in many places into a secular holiday, marking the coming of spring. Common rituals included dancing around a maypole, crowning a May Queen, and giving May baskets to friends and neighbors. Also in the 19th century, we find the beginnings of the International Workers' Holiday, that May Day has, for more than a century and a half, been associated with a few key concepts and serves as a measure of the balance of power between workers and the capitalist class. Eventually, May Day became a workers' holiday in many countries, but not the USA. To understand why, we need to closely examine the events of 1886. But the roots of the struggle go back farther. In the early 19th century, as the United States began to industrialize, conflicts arose between workers and their employers over the length of the workday. Even more than pay rates or safety in dangerous workplaces, a desire to reduce the hours of work motivated worker discontent. Most workers were expected to be on the job for 10, 12, and sometimes more hours a day, and the work week was usually six days, not five. That's the historical reality behind the bumper sticker you might have seen that says, unions, the folks that brought you the weekend. No worker protection laws like those we have today regulated the workplace during the Gilded Age, the late 19th and early 20th century. Most labor laws were anti-worker and unions were considered by the courts to be unlawful conspiracies against the right of bosses to do whatever they wanted. As George Baer, president of the Reading Railroad put it. 
The rights of the laboring man will be protected and cared for, not by the labor agitator, but by the Christian men to whom God has given control of the property interests of this country. For workers, things looked different. They understood every extra hour on the job as an hour they didn't spend with family, friends, pursuing self-improvement, having fun, or sleeping. They felt that the length of the workday should be a matter of negotiation, not dictatorship. To assist their efforts, they formed unions and political parties. The first unions were built by workers in the 1790s, and by the 1820s, they had founded working men's parties. One of the key demands of these organizations was a shorter workday. This difference of opinion between workers and employers often resulted in strikes and sometimes spread beyond one workplace to an entire industry or even an entire city. In late May 1835, coal heavers on the Philadelphia docks went on strike for a 10-hour day. Here's how one historian described events. As they paraded down the streets of the city on June 3rd, cordwainers, carpenters, and other tradesmen followed with the shouts of, we are all day laborers. Throughout the week, leaders used labor presses, posters, and parades complete with drum and fife corps demanding a 10-hour day to rally Philadelphia workers to join their brethren in the fight. By June 10th, over 40 trades and nearly 20,000 workers, including city employees, joined the strike. By the end of June, most laborers received the concessions they asked for. Thanks to events like this, by 1867, the movement for an eight-hour day had taken hold in the imagination of working people. They had a slogan, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. But things didn't just move forward. Then, as today, economic hard times would reverse the workers' movement's victories. Around this time in Chicago occurred the first large, if unsuccessful, demonstrations and strikes on May 1st for the eight-hour day. The governor of Illinois signed the first statewide eight-hour day law in the country on March 1st, 1867, meant to take effect on May 1st. It included an unfortunate loophole. It would only apply in workplaces where there was, quote, no special contract to the contrary, unquote. This undermined the law. Although 10,000 workers paraded in support of an effective law, and in many large factories the following day, workers simply walked out after eight hours, the employers prevailed and the law was not enforced. Across the country, in California, unions presented the state legislature with tens of thousands of signatures on a petition for an eight-hour day, and workers demonstrated and struck for the goal in towns and cities across the state. In February 1868, the governor signed an eight-hour day law, just the second in the country. But after completion of the Transcontinental Railroad and the onset of a national economic depression, California workers lost the eight-hour day as desperate workers flooded in from other states, willing to work more hours for the same pay. The push for an eight-hour workday was not arbitrary. A leader of the movement, machinist Ira Stewart, said that workers were usually too modest and meek in their behavior and their desires. He said people who worked 12 or 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week, could only think of eating and sleeping. They didn't have the energy or imagination to dream of a better world. 
let alone demand it or act together to achieve it. Across the Atlantic, Karl Marx, a leader in the small but influential International Workingmen's Association, also known as the First International, agreed. The eight-hour day, he said, was a central goal of the workers' movement and an important step in the direction of socialism. Employers, as well as workers, knew this, though bosses did everything in their power to prevent it. By the mid-1880s, a large number of workers' organizations had passed resolutions for an eight-hour day. Some thought local unions should pressure employers to grant an eight-hour day workplace by workplace. Others envisioned a legislative approach, attempting to pass laws in city and state governments with the ultimate goal a national law. Eventually, momentum built for a nationwide general strike that organizers hoped would mark the beginning of the eight-hour day. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions set May 1, 1886 as the big day. It asked the largest worker organization, the Knights of Labor, to join in. Although the general strike idea was popular in the ranks of the Knights, its more conservative leaders were not enthusiastic. So the Federation's local councils worked to create alliances with as many groups as possible, including local Knights' assemblies. For months beforehand, unions and other worker associations spread the word through meetings, demonstrations, flyers, newsletters, and other publications. The coalition effort was strong. Even before May 1st, tens of thousands of workers had been granted an eight-hour day by employers seeking to avoid a fight. A popular song was sung across the country in these meetings. We mean to make On May Day, a third of a million workers left their workplaces around the country. In many cities, the strikes and demonstrations continued for days. In New York, 10,000 marched and swelled a meeting in Union Square where the future president of the American Federation of Labor, Sam Gompers, predicted that. May 1st would forever be remembered as a second declaration of independence. In Louisville, black and white members of the Knights of Labor ignoring their conservative national leadership, left work and marched together in a parade of 6,000. The Knight's motto was, an injury to one is the concern of all. And in a time of enormous prejudice, many of its local assemblies nonetheless tried to live up to that ideal. Although parks in Louisville were off limits to African-Americans, the parade ended in National Park with an integrated demonstration. A black-owned newspaper reported, 
Thus have the nights of labor broken down the walls of prejudice. The city with the largest disruption to business as usual was Chicago. 80,000 strikers turned out, shutting some of the biggest factories. The majority were immigrants, Polish Catholics, Russian Jews, and Germans, who were especially active on the political left. But they came from elsewhere in Europe as well. The McCormick Reaper Works, a gigantic agricultural equipment factory, had already been on strike since February. And the factory was being run by strikebreakers with the assistance of hundreds of Chicago police and armed thugs hired by the company. An eight-hour demonstration was being held May 3rd by several thousand lumbermen near the factory when the bell signaled the end of the day for the strikebreakers. As they left, the crowd confronted them. A fight broke out. Police fired into the melee, killing one striker with more dying of their wounds soon after. One of the speakers at the rally and a witness to the police killings was Auguste Fies, a socialist journalist and a leading member of the Central Labor Council. He ran back to his office and produced a flyer in English and German calling for a demonstration the next evening at 7.30 in Haymarket Square to protest the police violence. Thousands of copies were distributed the next morning all over town. The hastily called meeting competed with several others in nearby neighborhoods, and a rainstorm was gathering. But around 3,000 showed up, filling just part of the large square. Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison left as the rain began to fall. He stopped in at the local police station and told Captain John Bonfield, who had gathered nearly 200 police and was planning to suppress the demonstration, that it was peaceful, winding down due to the rain, and that he should send the police back to their precincts. Instead, Bonfield ordered his men to move in and break up the demonstration. By then, there were about an even number of demonstrators and police. As the police moved into the crowd, someone threw a bomb into their midst. One officer was killed and dozens injured. In the confusion, the police opened fire in all directions, killing demonstrators and police alike. The next day, Mayor Harrison declared martial law and soon hundreds were arrested. Some were union leaders and left-wing activists, and others were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eventually, all but eight men were released. These eight were charged with murder. The working class leaders, six of whom were German immigrants and several of whom were never in Haymarket Square, were chosen not due to any evidence that connected them to the bomb. Indeed, the bomber was never found. What linked the eight was their effectiveness as organizers in the city's largely immigrant working class. Normal jury selection processes were suspended and a jury was handpicked for its hostility to unions, socialism, and anarchism. The judge ordered that all eight were to be tried together in a conspiracy trial. He forbade the defense to clarify any of the men's political beliefs, ordering them only to respond directly to specific points raised by the prosecution, while the prosecution spoke at great length about anarchism and violence. The state's attorney candidly described what this trial was about. He said, Law is on trial. Anarchy is on trial. These men have been selected, picked out by the grand jury, and indicted because they are the leaders. They are no more guilty than those thousands who follow them. Gentlemen of the jury, convict these men, make examples of them, hang them, and you save our institution, our society. Seven of the eight were convicted, four were executed, 
and another committed suicide or was murdered in his cell. Lucy Parsons, the wife of one of the defendants, worked tirelessly to clear his name and those of the other class war prisoners. Chicago police said she was more dangerous than a thousand rioters. A few years later, Illinois Governor Peter Altgeld, over furious protests by law enforcement, pardoned the remaining three prisoners. He believed, as legal scholars do today, that the trial had been a farce. In the hysterical atmosphere of the nation's first employer-orchestrated Red Scare, the momentum of the eight-hour movement was greatly slowed. Ultimately, it took more than 50 years before the eight-hour day became part of federal law. So how did May Day become an international workers' holiday? The last quarter of the 19th century saw the growth all over the world of a movement for socialism. The International Workingmen's Association of Karl Marx had been disbanded in 1876, but a new international, founded in Paris in 1889, represented millions of workers due to the rise of large mass political parties of the left, dedicated to a transition from capitalism to socialism. In one of its first official acts, in response to the travesty of justice in Chicago, the Second Socialist International proclaimed that each May 1st, workers the world over should demonstrate and act, quote, in a manner suited to the conditions in their own country, unquote, to achieve the eight-hour workday. Since that time, nearly 100 countries have established May 1st as International Workers' Day, or Labor Day. The governments of those countries mostly didn't do that out of benevolence or their own free will. It took organized movements of workers that pushed the governments to proclaim May Day as a holiday. It didn't happen in the United States due to two things. The momentum that developed throughout the 1880s before the events of 1886 for a Labor Day on a different date, plus the fears among labor leaders following the Haymarket convictions of being associated with the portrayal of anarchism and socialism as violent ideologies by the conservative media and politicians on behalf of the employers. As a growing number of cities, beginning with New York in 1882, and states, starting with Oregon in 1887, proclaimed Labor Day in September as a holiday, it seemed simpler and safer to go with that by the time President Grover Cleveland signed it into federal law in 1894. For worried union leaders, Labor Day didn't have the whiff of radicalism associated with May 1st. For government and business leaders, Labor Day in September was seen as an escape valve, letting the working class have its non-radical day off. But the sentiments for a May Day celebration have never gone away because there's a very powerful cluster of ideas that emerged out of this history. The movement for the eight-hour day was tied to an idea for a work holiday on May 1st, and also to a general strike to achieve the eight-hour day. You can think about it this way. A work holiday is, in effect, a legal general strike, which is why the pushback has often been so harsh by employers and government. If we go back to the ideas of the 19th century, Time off work can provide the space needed by workers to consider other ways of organizing not only their own time outside work, but reorganizing society itself as well. That's a compelling concept, and it accounts for the ongoing attempts to revive the tradition, as well as continuing efforts to suppress it. By the early 20th century, Sam Gompers and the AFL had abandoned May Day in favor of Labor Day. 
But socialists, the industrial workers of the world, communists, and waves of immigrants continue to promote the holiday. In 1919, in the midst of the Spanish flu pandemic and a Red Scare led by U.S. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, 20,000 workers demonstrated in Cleveland on May 1st. Here, and in many other major cities, demonstrations and marches were met with violent repression by the authorities. This moment represented an international peak of class struggle in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Huge May Day demonstrations and general strikes rocked the capitals and lesser cities of Europe. In Winnipeg, Canada, May Day demonstrations evolved into a weeks-long general strike. Let's take a brief detour to look at common elements of general strikes and some examples. Four things are usually required. A generalized anger in the working class, a call by worker leadership for a general strike, an organizational structure in place that can carry it out, and a spark. In that same year of 1919 in February, 65,000 workers went out on the Seattle general strike. A hundred unions affiliated with the Central Labor Council joined a solidarity strike in support of shipyard workers who were already out. The general strike lasted a week, during which workers ran the city, teaching themselves that such things could be done. But it ended with raids of IWW and socialist offices and mass arrests amid a vicious, coordinated, employer and government-led Red Scare. In 1934, during the Great Depression, May Day drew a couple hundred thousand marchers in New York. San Francisco saw smaller demonstrations. But nine days later, maritime workers went out on a West Coast-wide strike. After two participants were killed by police, the San Francisco Labor Council called a general strike. The work stoppage brought virtually all industrial and commercial operations to a halt. After this display of determined collective power, maritime workers gained union recognition, substantial increases in wages, and control over their hiring halls. One year to the day after the San Francisco strikers were killed, Congress passed and President Roosevelt signed the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA, establishing a national legal mechanism for peaceful workplace conflict resolution. Three years later, he signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, and eight hours finally became the workday standard. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong, but if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. You got shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. In 1946, the Oakland General Strike, part of a massive strike wave of industrial workers following World War II, was the last of six citywide general strikes that year, and the latest our country has produced. A less violent and less conclusive affair than San Francisco's, touched off by women clerks on strike for union recognition in downtown department stores, the mass action nevertheless led to collective bargaining in the town's retail industry. The Oakland general strike, interestingly, did not call itself a general strike. Its leaders called it a work holiday. And it had a festive atmosphere, partly due to its occurrence during the holiday season, but also because the capitalist class chose not to contest the outcome with armed force in the streets. 
At various points, it has seemed that the May Day holiday might re-emerge as a realistic worker demand in America. These efforts stubbornly continue to this day, up to and including the call for general strikes in support of May Day, but also in connection with other movements of resistance with greater contemporary resonance. Recent calls for a general strike, such as the massive 2006 May Day immigrant rights marches, and the Occupy Oakland November 2011 Day of Action that commandeered downtown streets, shuttered banks, and closed the port, have not resulted in the classic general strike scenario of everyone leaving work, but sometimes managed to dent daily routines, make significant statements, and impact public opinion, especially when they are attached to actually existing movements with achievable goals. Whether we ultimately get to a May Day holiday, or general strike for other purposes, will depend less on desire as on the practical readiness of large numbers of workers who understand their own collective power in a mature organizational center to harness and channel that energy effectively. It's ironic that the events that gave birth to May Day occurred in 1886, the same year that the United States received the Statue of Liberty from France. A symbol of welcome to immigrants was dedicated just as a wave of anti-immigrant scapegoating swept the nation, set in motion by anti-labor forces to hold the line against the eight-hour day. Similar contradictions continue to the present. So which will it be? Divide and conquer, or unite and win? For the last few years, we have been seeing a significant uptick in strike action. After decades of decline in the number of walkouts, public education workers, auto, hotel, and grocery workers, and others have pushed their protests against bad working conditions and inadequate pay into the streets. Frontline workers demanded safe workplaces during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hundreds of mostly small but noisy strikes at fast food restaurants, factories, delivery services, and especially in the global supply chain bubbled up in 2020. The actions were accompanied by an outpouring of affection and support for these workers as the public encountered them in hospitals, supermarkets, at the door of their homes, and in the streets, and with a renewed appreciation for their essential work. Since then, a growing awareness by workers of their potential power has begun to spur further union organizing and renewed attention to May Day demonstrations. The question is how these building blocks of social change, collective action, public support for workers, and imagining a better world can be pulled together and amplified and nourished during the current crisis. That's another way of asking the same question always posed by May Day. Whether the working class can organize more effectively than the capitalist class. The history of May Day, with its ebb and flow of connections between labor and socialism, reform struggles and revolutionary ideas, repression and resistance, tells us that winning is far from easy, but that it's possible. It depends on us. Okay, there you have it. Um, history of May Day, especially when 
with a special emphasis on May Day as a worker's holiday that was basically taken from American workers and moved uh, into Labor Day during September. <coughs> basically because the ruling forces in the United States didn't want American workers to share a worldwide celebration. Anyway, happy. I hope you have a happy May Day coming up on Monday. And uh, about 11.30 here on Labor and Love. We've got a few more things to get to. But first... Let's have some more Labor Day, May Day music. How about those people, mostly women, who uh, clean the beds, sweep the floor, throw away your garbage when you stay at a hotel?
People say a man is made out of mud. Old man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak, a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning and the sun didn't shine. Picked up my shovel, I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal. The straw boss said, well, bless my soul, you load 16 tons. And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Hold my soul to the company store. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble my middle name raised in the cane break by an old mama lion no high-toned woman make me walk the line you load 16 tons and what do you get another day older deeper in debt st peter don't you call me cause i can't go i owe my soul to the company store better step aside a lot of men didn't a lot of men died one fist of iron the other of steel the right one don't get you then the left one will you load 16 tons what do you get another day older deeper in debt st peter don't you call me cause i can't go i owe my soul Come on. 
set for today. <coughs> Paul Robeson, great Paul Robeson, singing a song of solidarity with the Volga boatman in Russian. Logan was, Robeson was amazing. Had to be brought to Intelligent, too warm-hearted, too big-hearted, too international. Basically, too much for the workers. Before that, Tennessee Ernie Ford with a hit that he had in the 1950s. That one was reprising it for television. 16 tons about the life of a coal miner. Remember that from elementary school. People were singing that song. I wonder how many of them understood what it was about. And the real deep meaning involved in that song. For that Donna Summer about those invisible people who clean up after you, who empty your waste baskets, strip your bed, Clean the sheets, dust, make everything look nice and new and spiffy for you. They're people. Have you noticed that? They're not invisible. I want to mention two more things now before we leave. Number one is two documentaries that I've seen recently that I would recommend highly. One of them was about, uh, they can be seen through PBS. One of them was about the, San, the collapse of the San Francisco Dam in Los Angeles in the 19, 1924, I want to say. And the flip side of... Uh, human desire to conquer nature. Nature always gets her own back. I always say, like, save the earth. I don't think the earth is going to need saving. The earth is going to be fine. We're talking about saving human life on earth, the quality of human life on earth. And the second one is a, no, a call out of congratulations to my sister, Alexandra Morgan, who was uh, called out and cited 
last night at the Warrior game, one of the bright spots, one of the few bright spots, for her work with a nonprofit called Family House that provides housing for families of students who are of children who are undergoing cancer treatment. Keep up the good work, sister. She's been at it. She's virtually transformed the place from a single apartment building to a huge complex, you would say, huge building. Some of the best places for families to stay while their children are undergoing cancer. So, what have we got left? Um, we've got about four more minutes, probably more than that, to get on with situation. Let's just play a little bit of bituation. Topaz Gigapixel AI uses revolutionary AI technology to accurately no, answer socialism to the right wing. Want to not die in a pandemic? Socialism. Want clean air? Socialism. Want the working class to seize the means of production and democratize the economy? Okay, that is socialism and it sounds pretty good. The accusation of socialism is part of the playbook the GOP is now running against Joe Biden and his climate plan. Except we've been here before. I'm Francesca Fiorentini and we're looking at how the right has historically red baited any social programs that threaten to help people. Programs that eventually become incredibly popular and ones Republicans have no alternative to. They whine while so-called socialism works. Joe Biden's climate plan is not the Green New Deal, but it is incredibly ambitious, which thank God, because here in California, the wildfires are making everything smell like barbecue, threatening both our lives and our commitment to vegetarianism. Mama want a brisket. After a joint task force with Bernie Sanders supporters like AOC and members of the Sunrise Movement, Biden's climate plan is now a $2 trillion commitment that includes eliminating carbon pollution. Okay, that's about all the time left to take up Bituation's call, uh, take on socialism next week. Right now, I want to remind you Person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else would work for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend. Labor. Only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Please stay tuned for Scott Walker and his program, Flat Black Plastic. And have a good week and good work. I want to say go Warriors, but I'm afraid I'll jinx them. This is the beast.
tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a paddle? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard, we pirates, as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirates as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasure. They've got live comedy, the small business section, LGBTQ-friendly, of course, vinyl to gutter pops. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy sick face McGrath. Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation, what it takes to be funny. In the five Shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene, this all-ages open mic invites Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, two seven eight one Twenty First Street, on Florida Street, in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at six p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun, but every weekend OMG used to be open mic and see comics work out new material for free. For free, they get me Tuesday night partying. Fun no. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, bested Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino. I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars on, hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses, the print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value and the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in Who's That Live.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to Who's That Live.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in the raffle, I guess. True, 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 true production. True 
first Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. first Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy with Mutiny Radio. Incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the Bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy. First Sundays of the month, Hotel Utah, 4th Street. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog fri- we are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 278 121st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine, and even in Whistle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Talk in public schools. 
In tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that who's that? Go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey into the absurd. Radio Havana, 1109 Valencia at 22nd in San Francisco. The Wyatt Improv Comedy Music.